good evening, everybody. It's uh, good to see all of you again. Uh, all right, so Anna has already mentioned a couple of the uh, background. Uh, just She just uh, expanded on on the whole series that we are kicking off tonight, uh, questions that won't go away. And, and I wasn't here, here, but if I'm right, you all participated in a questionnaire of sorts and you filled in some of the questions that you thought won't go away. And the uh, question that, if I'm correct, had the most votes or was mentioned the most was this one. What happens to those who have never heard the gospel? Now, uh, before we begin, I want to read a couple of verses from the end of Matthew 28. Uh, Matthew 28 from verse 16. We read, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All right, so this, this passage is commonly known as the Great Commission, where Jesus uh, commands his church to go out into the world make disciples, teach them, baptize them. That's, the great, that's known as the, as the Great Commission. <clears throat> and uh, I'm not going to spend nearly as much time as I wanted to on that particular passage because we first have to unravel some of the difficulties surrounding the question that we need to address this evening. So what about all those people who well, through all the centuries, who have been living isolated lives, maybe, uh, who have never heard the name Jesus, what happens to them? Another way of putting the question might be, what happens to the unevangelized? <clears throat> Those who are never confronted with the gospel of Jesus. What's their fate? And I think most of you here, if not all of you, have at one point probably wrestled with this uh, question. And the first thing I want us to notice is that in some sense it is a moral question. What do I mean? It's a question directed, that's typically directed at the moral character of God. So the question would be, how can God be a fair and a just God, if not everyone everywhere gets a chance to respond to the gospel of Jesus. Or it has also been phrased like this, how can a loving God send people to hell? Right, so in some sense, it has been used as this kind of a moral inquiry into the character of God. Uh, so, as I've said, I know I've started with a scripture reading, and I know I won't spend nearly as much time unpacking it as, as I would have liked to. But when we at least attempt to answer this question this evening, uh, we need to first 
I think, look at some of the options on the table that I, that I would say is not biblical. Some of the options that have been provided, which I think does not do justice to the data in the Bible that we do have. So let's just look at a couple of them first, and then we'll move on from there. So just to be clear, the following positions is how I think Christians should not answer this question. All right. Now, the first one is called universalism. This basically says that everyone is ultimately saved regardless of what they believe. So a universalist will then consequently also reject any notion of uh, hell or eternal condemnation or something of that sort. Now, of course, in a time where, in the time in which we live, where people are, are so quickly offended, this position is very popular because what it ends up doing is it, it makes the gospel of Jesus less offensive to people. Okay. Um, now, make no mistake, this is not a new position. Uh, you can trace it back to the church father Origen, uh, who has been called a heretic because of it. But in any way, um, it's not a new position, but it is very popular today. Another view that also works very well today is one that is called, it's, it's, it, there's a lot of overlap between this one and universalism, but it's also called inclusivism, which says that Christ saves not only those who consciously believe the gospel, but also all who never heard the gospel, but maybe fulfilled some or other requirement, you know, like, you know, maybe they were religious in some sense, they they worked hard or wh whatever the requirement might end up be. Um, but this is inclusivism. And then the third one I would mention that I think is also a very popular one today is called religious pluralism. And this one basically says that all religions uh, can lead to God. The, the image that we would typically use to describe this view is to say that each, uh, all the different religions in the world is just different pathways up the same mountain. So it leads to the same ultimate destination. So this would mean that salvation is not necessarily based on Jesus, believing in Jesus Christ. And for, uh, for some people, pluralism is distinguished from universalism in that pluralism says that any religion can save but not necessarily all will be will actually be saved. All right, so that might be a distinction there. Now look, the, the, all three of these views have some overlap and they have some differences here and there. And as far as I'm concerned, I think these views cannot really account for some of the texts that we do read in the Bible. I think it doesn't do justice to all the texts that we read in the Bible. And I think it is... It, it is some sort of attempt to make the gospel less offensive, maybe in our modern day and age, um, to the world out there, people who might reject the gospel of Jesus. But I think we need to be clear about this. The gospel will be offensive to some people. All right? The apostles clearly thought this. I mean, if you read Second Corinthians 2, the apostle Paul writes, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. 
Now, this passage presents an inverted sequence of two categories. You have uh, the ones being saved, and then also the ones who are perishing. So you have these two categories. And the inverted order between these two stresses the concept of the aroma, which is then either good or bad. So he starts with the good, uh, when he talks about the two categories, the good and the bad, like those who are being saved, those who are perishing, but then he turns it around and he deals with the bad first, and he says that it's actually a smell of death to those who are perishing, and it's of course a fragrance of life for those who are being saved. Okay, so that's, I mean, if, if, if the gospel is going to be a smell of death, it's going to be offensive. Um, the same, we read the same in Second Peter 2, where he writes, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, then the, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So Peter is basically implying the cornerstone, who is Jesus Christ himself, will cause offense, it will cause people to stumble, it will cause embarrassment. And um, I think, simply put, he basically says that we either put our faith in Jesus, the foundation, the cornerstone, or we dash our foot against it. And the point is that the person, the claims, and the works of Jesus Christ has, in a sense, then always been offensive to some people, and that, I think, should not surprise us, and it should also not cause us to compromise on the exclusivity of Jesus. All right, like these are other views that I've mentioned. And when it comes to the exclusivity of Jesus, I think the bearing that it has on this particular question that we're addressing this evening, whatever our answer to this question is, we need to maintain the ex uh, exclusivism or the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Now, the best way to summarize the exclusivity of the gospel is in the words of John 14, verse 6, where Jesus himself says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right, now, this is probably the most explicit verse in the New Testament where Jesus claims that ultimate salvation is only available in and through him. Uh, but we also see that the apostles affirmed this. Uh, the apostle Peter in Acts 4, when he preaches, he says, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. All right, so um, the, exclu the, exclus the exclusivity of the gospel has need, we must maintain that. I think, and these are just, these, this is just two verses. I can, we can probably consult many other passages in the Bible where these kinds of exclusive claims are made. And so whatever our answer is, we need to maintain the exclusivity of the gospel. Okay. Now just consider for a moment that a view like universalism, for example, is actually true. All right. It's actually true that all people will be saved regardless of their beliefs in, in life. Now, how, if that, that is true, how do we make sense of the Great Commission which we read in Matthew 28? 
Will we actually take it seriously? What do you think? I see one head shaking at least. <laughs> no, we will not take it seriously. Definitely, well, I at least definitely will not. If all people are actually saved, regardless of their beliefs, then why on earth does God want me to go into the world and preach the gospel to people? Moreover, why on earth did Paul go through the effort of going on all, the, all those missionary journeys? It, I mean, it wasn't easy. It was a lot of effort, a lot of challenges. Why, would, why, why did he do that if universalism is true? So it's precisely because he knew and understood the exclusivity of the gospel that he wanted to share it with the Gentiles. Okay, so, uh, in, uh, so that's all the, I, I think, the unbiblical views, which doesn't make sense of the data. But now I want to go on and just establish some truths surrounding this issue. And then uh, we can briefly consider the passage that I've read at the beginning. So I want to begin by just identifying one presupposition or one assumption of the question. So when we ask the question, what about those who have never heard the gospel? What happens to them? We are making a, an assumption. We are basically assuming that all people who have never heard of Jesus are unfairly condemned by God. Okay, that's one of the assumptions behind the question. So the question then rather becomes, will God punish a person for not believing in Jesus if he never heard of Jesus? Will God punish a person for not believing in Jesus if he never heard of Jesus? Now, the answer to this question, I think, is actually quite straightforward. I think God will not punish any for rejecting what they have never heard or had no opportunity to hear. So if a person has gone through his life without ever hearing the name of Jesus, God is not going to punish that person for rejecting Jesus Christ. And the reason I think we, we can know this is because we know that God is just and righteous and and I think that's one of the consequences so we need to remember that 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 that's that, that God will not punish someone who has never heard for not hearing the name Jesus all right but the question then becomes what will God then punish someone for so that's the next question I think we need to answer here and, and we need to remember that God's wrath is being poured out not against those who have rejected Jesus or those who have particularly not never heard of Jesus, but against anyone who have sinned. So God's wrath is on each and every one of us because we are all sinners. I think that's what the Bible teaches. I think Paul got it right in Romans 3 verse 23, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right, so... So everybody is a sinner and God punishes sin. Now, granted, unbelief or a, or a rejection of Jesus is in some sense a sin, but it is a sin which allows God's wrath to remain on you. So in other words, God's eternal wrath is on each and every one of us because of our sin, but it will remain on you because of unbelief 
Now, of course, this assumes that, that we can, in some sense, escape God's wrath. And, of course, that is, that is true, I think. Because the only way we do actually escape the wrath of God is through the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul addresses this question in Romans 5, verse 9, which I'm not going to read uh, right now. But the point is that there is, there is a way of, getting, of escaping the wrath of God but unbelief, so God's wrath is on each and every one of us, and unbelief causes His wrath to remain on you. That's, I think that's the point that we need to understand here. We can think of it this way by analogy. If I were to die of some or other d disease, okay, the reason I died is not because of, because of a lack of a cure for the disease, but primarily because of the disease itself. Right? I'm not, I didn't die because I didn't get a cure for the disease. I died because I had the disease. And in a similar way, uh, no one is condemned because of a lack of the cure for sin. And the cure for sin is Jesus. We are condemned because of sin itself. Okay, so our transgressions against an infinite and holy God, that is what condemns us. It's not a lack of a cure for our sin that condemns us. And so if this is true, I think we need to rethink whether there is anything unfair about God's condemnation of sinners. So if we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, we all deserve just punishment for our sins, do we not? Right? If, if we've sinned against an infinite being, the punishment will be infinite. So I think the the way we should then rethink this is to say that if God were to be fair, we all have to be condemned. All right, if He were to be just, fair, everybody must be condemned. And this is then one crucial truth that we need to understand, the, that there's this flawed assumption behind the question, I think. So moving on, as, as I'm trying to answer this question, we need to, we need to spend some time to discuss what is known as general and special revelation. Alright. Now, look, I'm, I'm going to try to put some puzzle pieces together and then hopefully at the end of the... when we reach the end, it will all make sense. And if it doesn't, then, well, then I need to go and rethink some of this stuff myself. <laughs> but in any case, so general and special revelation. Uh, now, I, th I think to many of you, this might actually be, you might be familiar with these phrases when we talk about general and special revelation, but it is important to revisit it now because it has tremendous bearing on this question, and as I go on, we'll probably see why it does. So when we talk about revelation, forget general or special revelation, revelation, it is a term that we use to express the notion that God is making Himself known to us. It is the idea that He is lifting uh, is lifting the shade of on truths that we would otherwise not have known. He's releasing the light on things. He's uncovering something. He's uh, pulling back the veil, you could say. Now, and, and we see this all over the, the passages of the Bible. So if you, for example, go to Psalm 98 verse 2, you read, The Lord has made known His salvation. His righteousness ha He has revealed in the sight of the nations. Deuteronomy 29 verse 29, 
reads as follows, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the Lord. Now this passage assumes that there are some things that we do, will never know, because it belongs to the, um, you know, to the, to the, the secret things of God. But then, when God reveals something, He brings it, He makes it accessible to us so that we can actually know it. And of course, any, any knowledge of God, any discourse about God is dependent upon Him revealing Himself. If, if God uh, decided to remain fully hidden, then we would not never have known Him. So what, is, what did He do? Well, He reveals Himself. He steps out of the darkness into the light uh, one could say, or at least partially into the light, and allows us to see things that we would otherwise not have known. And so the Old Testament uses words like appear, made known. Uh, we also read that God teach, He leads, He guides, He instructs. Those are all, I think, revelational terms of God revealing, making known. And then when we page to the New Testament, we see in Hebrews 1, verse 1 to 2, we read this passage, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. Now this immediately takes us to the finality of Revelation, in some sense. Because... The author of Hebrews says that, yeah, God spoke through the prophets and, and, and in many ways, but then in these final days, He has spoken to us through His Son. And so the, the climax of God's revelation of Himself is the person and the works of Jesus, as it is attested to in the Scriptures. So that is sort of the, the climax of God's revelation. And I mean... John 17, when Jesus prays to the, to the Father, He says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. And so in this passage, Jesus then directly links Himself as an agent who made God's character known throughout His whole ministry. All right, so, so we need to recognize that, well, let me, before saying this, it, it, the New Testament then uses words like reveal, appear, manifest, to shine the light, all these kinds of phrases to also refer to revelation. And that's how God reveals Himself. So we need to realize that God reveals, all right, and the climax of that revelation is Jesus. And Christianity, that is how Christianity originated, is through revelation. And if that's true, then Christianity will always claim a supernatural origin. The source of Christianity is the triune God. And, and that is the origin of its message. But now, as I've said, there's general and there's special revelation. All right. General revelation refers to God's revelation of Himself in creation. And we've made this distinction on the grounds of Scripture. I'll go through some passages now where I think this is pr pretty clear, but the point is general and special revelation, that division is, you can find it in the Bible as well. But so general revelation is revelation in the world around us, in and through God's creation. Uh, 
And so, in this sense, general revelation is based on God's creation, and it is called general precisely because it is generally available to all people. Okay, that's why it was given the name. It's also, one other name it has been given is also natural revelation, because it is in nature uh, which God created. Okay, now, it's not just that, but it's also through our moral uh, the, the moral underpinning in the universe and our conscience. God also reveals himself there. So it includes the material universe and then also the providence of God where we witness the days, the seasons, and all these changes in God's creation, and then our conscience. And so all of these features is designed and structured and ordered in such a way that it points us, and it, it alerts us to the glory of God. It, it sort of paves the way for us to see His glory, His majesty, and to realize then that we are ultimately accountable to Him. So consider, for example, Psalm 19, verse 1 to 2. The heavens declare the gl glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night it reveals knowledge. The handiworks of God pours out speech. It reveals knowledge. It's communicating. There is a communication coming to us constantly from the world outside of us. Romans 1 is probably the most um, popular verse that's used to ground general revelation where we read in verse 19 to 20, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now it's interesting language that Paul uses here because notice he talks about the invisible attributes of God. Now if something is invisible, it's per definition, you, well, you're not able to see it, right? That's what it means for something to be invisible. But notice he says the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen. It's, it's an ins interesting way of phrasing this. It's clearly seen. Where is it clearly seen? He says, in the things that have been made, the creation of God. And then he, Paul continues, he says, so everyone is without excuse. Literally, actually, everyone is without a defense. That's what it literally says. So that's general revelation. Then in Romans 2, he continues, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law, they show that the works of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Again, this is the moral underpinning of the universe, that although someone might not have the law that we find in the Old Testament, they become, there's sort of a, an implanted moral compass in, in human nature so that everybody in some sense knows what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil. And uh, that's, the, that's the conscience. <clears throat> and then also in Acts 14 verse 17, yes, uh, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. <clears throat> and I think in Colossians 1.17, we know that 
in, in, in um, that Paul writes there that in Jesus Christ everything holds together. And this is what I think this verse is about. God maintaining, upholding, providing the, His creation. If God were to uh, withdraw His sustaining power from the universe, everything would just go out of, out of existence. Okay, so God is constantly upholding, constantly maintaining. And that's also then His general revelation. So, the one thing that I think this, these verses that I've read invites us to do, it does not invite us to, to, to read a page further, right? <clears throat> it invites us to lift up our eyes to the heavens. It invites us to contemplate our conscience, the moral underpinning in the universe. That's what it invites us to do, to witness God's revelation of Himself in nature <clears throat> and in our conscience. So that is general revelation. And notice, again, it's called general because it is generally available to all people. No one escapes general revelation. <clears throat> it's, uh, it's presented to everyone. Now, of course, I'm not speaking here or including in this context someone who might lack a faculty, someone who might be blind, someone who might lack the mental capacity to understand things in nature. Those are not the norm, so I'm not including that. And of course, God in His sovereignty can know how to, He knows best how to, how to deal with those people. And I'm not going to presume to know, to act as if I know what's going on there. Um, <clears throat> but, but I'm not including that. Every normally functioning human being has access to God's general revelation. But we have to understand something very important about this. General revelation is limited. Okay, so the, the purpose of general revelation is to provide everyone, uh, you could say, with enough light to leave them responsible and consequently without excuse before God. That's what it provides man with. It will, but, but, but what it does not give us is it does not give us uh, knowledge of God's saving grace in and through the person of Jesus Christ. We cannot look at the trees out there or at His handiwork in the heavens and conclude that there is something unique about Jesus dying on the cross or that, you know, that He resurrected from the dead. No, that, that's revealed to us elsewhere. We cannot look at His handiworks and come to that conclusion. We need additional revelation to, 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 um, to come to that conclusion. Okay, so what do we need then to be saved? Uh, or at least to make salvation possible? That's, what, that's, that's, that's the question that we need to ask then. Because general revelation is not enough for that. What we need then is the other category called special revelation. That is what makes salvation possible. And I know... We can go into a lot of technicalities when it comes to special revelation because it includes things like dreams, visions, um, <clears throat> and other ways where God reveals Himself specially to individuals. But So we can go into that, but the point is that the nature of special revelation is always such that it will be at least today I would say that it will be 
will involve some or other encounter with the person of Jesus Christ. So we need the knowledge of Jesus Christ as it is attested to in the Bible, or of course as we see many Muslims today receiving visions of Jesus in a dream and then becoming Christians. I mean, that's happening today, and you can go and read. Those cases are well documented, and you can go and read some of it. But I mean, that special revelation, <coughs> where someone is presented with knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's almost, it's almost like a Damascus experience where the, in the way that Paul uh, became converted to, to Christ. Okay, so that's special revelation. And so, and so to summarize then, we can say that general revelation does not condemn us because the first point we already made is that we're already condemned because of sin. All right, so general revelation does not condemn us. We're already condemned because of our own personal sin. What it does do is it further leaves everyone without excuse. All right, it leaves us without excuse. So it does not condemn us, but it does not save us either. Okay, because it is limited, cannot make us wise unto salvation, as Paul would say. So, the, so this is how one uh, theologian explains this. He says, The heavens declare the glory of God, but only Christ declares His saving grace. Nature may reveal the ages of the rocks, but only Scripture makes known the rock of the ages, referring to Jesus Christ. So, what bearing does all of this have on the question, what about those who have never heard the gospel? So consider, uh, once again, Acts 4 verse 12. <clears throat> And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Or then John 3 verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So the point is that eternal life is given to those who believe in Jesus and those who do not believe in Jesus as we read here in the Gospel of John, shall not see life. Now, there's a distinction that we need to see here, and this is faith is required for salvation, not ignorance. Right, so faith is required to be saved, faith in Jesus, not ignorance about Jesus. Okay, and we, I think we need to, need to understand that. But this then raises the question, how does one come to faith? How are you able to believe the gospel of Jesus? Well, Paul addresses this in Romans 10, where he writes the following. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him? in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. Now this is a very interesting passage, and the reason is, because he combines special and general revelation here. Notice, he's talking about special revelation, where he talks about preaching of the gospel, people who's going to come to faith must hear it. They cannot hear it if there's no 
um, no one who preaches it to them. But then he says, then he answers, he sort of answers the question that we're addressing this night, but, but have they not heard? And he says, indeed they have, for it goes out to all the earth. And that is a quotation of Psalm 19, which is general revelation. In that context, the psalmist is unpacking the handiworks of God in creation. And so Paul is sort of bringing them together here and saying that they need special revelation to be saved, but notice that general revelation has gone out to everyone, which is then enough to leave, to leave, to leave us without excuse. All right, and, and I think that's, that's very interesting. And if, 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 if some of you want to pursue this verse further, it's, it's, um, we can do that as well. Okay, but <clears throat> let me now attempt to bring everything together and then make sense of this. Okay, general revelation is given to all people everywhere through the things that God made. And this revelation is enough to leave everyone without excuse. So although it speaks eloquently of that which it speaks about, it does not speak of God's saving grace. It only alerts us to the glory of God and, and makes us realize that we are ultimately accountable to Him. It makes us realize our dependency upon him because he's the one who provides okay that's general special revelation is given for all people but not to all people it's given for all people but not to all people if you read the bible special revelation in the form of visions dreams etc is given not to everyone like general revelation it's given to individuals at certain points in time and today it's given to us in the pages of the bible but when it's given to someone, it always comes with a responsibility. And that responsibility is that this is given to you for everyone. So you have a responsibility with this information that I've given you. Take it to everyone. All right, so gen special revelation is given for all people, but not to all people. And then, this is my way of making sense of this. And of course, there's other ways other theologians or philosophers have tried to answer this question. But I, I can at least say this. I think this is an internally coherent view. Um, it might not, that, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily a true, but I think it is internally coherent. I believe it is possible for someone, through the preparatory work of the Holy Spirit, to respond positively to God's general revelation. So this means that believing on Christ can already begin before he actually hears the gospel through the work of the Holy Spirit and through the means of the information provided by general revelation. So, in that context, the Holy Spirit is the agent who changes the disposition of one's heart to the light of general revelation. But then, because all revelation both special and general revelation, finally finds its fulfillment and its meaning in the person and the works of Jesus, he must be viewed, Jesus, he must be viewed as the one in whom all of reality and revelation unite in the sense that revelation coheres and is orientated in and towards him. So gen general revelation then becomes a signpost which points towards Jesus Christ. And so then, if someone 
through the preparatory work of the Holy Spirit, responds to it, I think God in His sovereignty will get the gospel to that person. Okay, so if someone responds positively to general revelation, God will provide special revelation. And I think uh, there's, well, look, there are so many missionaries who have had their stories told, and you can go and listen to that. One I've listened to last night because one of my friends recommended it to me was the Taliabo story, which is a, a isolated tribe in Indonesia who did not, who have not heard the gospel of Jesus until four missionaries came to them and started preaching the gospel to them. And they spent years in, in their community. They even ended up translating the Bible into their language. And as they taught them through the Bible, one of the members of the tribe of Taliabo basically said this, you know, um, I know we missed something. I know there was something that we were missing. And we did not know what it was until you came and you preached the gospel to us. All right. And I think that's an example of what I'm trying to, to explain. is someone who responds positively to general revelation through God pooling them through the preparatory work of the Spirit. He will provide a means of uh, an instrument through which they will gain access to special revelation. And look, we, we have to realize here as well that, that uh, in this whole discussion, God is the sovereign one when it comes to salvation. What do I mean? Uh, God is the one who ordains to eternal life. I mean, if we read Acts 13, verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of God, of the Lord and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And then, of course, also I can go, go to John 6. But, but the point is that there's, there's a mystery here uh, which causes us to shelve this question where it ought to be shelved. And I think that place is in at least some aspects of it must take us back to the secret things of God. Like Deuteronomy 29 verse 29, which I've read that there are secret things that belongs to God which we are not supposed to know. He does not reveal it to us. We cannot know it. And I think part of this question, we need to go and shelf exactly there, that we will not know all of this. But what do we do know? I think we know enough uh, to say that God is just, God is righteous, and at some point... I will bend the knee and say, look, I can know up to a point and know further than that. And then I trust God that he knows best because he does. He's the one who is the author of the lives of the people who have never heard. And if that is true, then I can trust him that he knows what he's doing. Okay. And so I think we need to also... And I know that's not always very satisfying, but I know, but, but I don't know what else to say. Um, so I've tried to give you uh, my take on this, but now I want to revisit Matthew 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. 
And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, I think as a church, one question, this is a, uh, an important question, difficult question, one definitely worth wrestling with. But I would say, as a Christian community, a Christian church, another question which is equally important is, what are we doing with the gospel? Because it's been entrusted to us. Okay? Are we obedient to Jesus Christ as he gives us this great commandment? Or this great commission here in Matthew 28? Because it's not just given to his disciples. Yes, it's given to them there, but he gives it to his church. And if we take him seriously, we need to ask ourselves, look in the mirror, ask ourselves, are we doing something about this? Are we either participa are we participating in the Great Commission? Whether we are, you know, ourselves a missionary, or in some or other way supporting missionaries, whether th through prayer or through some or other means that we can, ha can do it. Okay? And, and I think that's an equally important question that we need to also address. So it's not, it's not so much what happens to them who have never heard. It's more a question of what are we doing about the people who have never heard. I want to end with um, a passage from Acts 17. And Paul is here in Athens on the Areopagus. And he is uh, um, talking to the Gentiles in Greece. And he says to them, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each and every one of us. And I think this is an interesting passage where we see God's role also in the history of the world and where people live and where in the context in which they live and so on. And if I want to link this up again with the great uh, commission in, Acts, uh, in Matthew 28, Paul took that commission very seriously. Now, I know he wasn't in the company when it was said, but he took that commission seriously because he went on all these missionary journeys and he arrived here in Acts 17 at, in Athens presenting the gospel to them, knowing that just because he's presenting the gospel doesn't mean everybody will accept it. Okay? He, he knew very well that some will laugh as they did at the resurrection of Jesus, but some did come to faith in that portion of scripture and others did not. And again, the question in front of each one of us is, what are we doing with the gospel of Jesus Christ? All right, let us, let us pray. Dear God, I thank you for this evening. I thank you that we can know you are here with us. Lord, I thank you for this community of Dialogue Church. Lord, that we can live life together, have this platform where we can worship you, 
listen to your voice in scripture, learn from you. Lord, we therefore ask that you would give us courage um, to really take your great commission seriously. That you would give us uh, the wisdom and the discernment to be missionaries ourselves and to also uh, uh, support missionaries who are doing exactly what Paul did in Acts 17, going to those who have not heard the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would make us responsible with your revelation of yourself that you have given to us in the face of your Son. We pray that you would give us courage to follow him, to love him, and to be obedient to his commands. Lord, we also pray for each and every one of us here. We ask that you would bless us in our daily work. We ask that you would be with us in, in situations where we are challenged with you know, uh, difficult situations in life. We ask that you would help us to carry each other's bur burdens. We ask that you would help us to reach out to each other. Lord, and we, we just want to thank you that you have made us part of something that is bigger than ourselves, that you have given us purpose in your kingdom as your instruments, as your servants. And Lord, that we pray that you would use each and every one of us to build your kingdom as we, uh, as we keep our eyes focused on your Son, Jesus Christ. And it is in his glorious, precious, and wonderful name that we pray all this. Amen.